Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when, as you know, if you listen to the show regularly, almost anything can happen. So on that note, let me give you a kind of a postscript to last night's show where we very serendipitously went to open lines because my guest, my planned guest, Neville Thompson, who is perhaps the world's preeminent gigapan uh, provider, uh, did not show because he and I both got the dates wrong because I had called him like a week ago last Sunday when I had one of those horrible migraines and I'd said to him, literally in a live conversation on Skype, I got to him in the afternoon, so he was still awake in England in the evening. I said, Neville, let's recycle the count and do this next Saturday. I feel awful, we can't do a show tonight, there's no way. And he talked about his mother and her migraines and all that. And we left agreeing, we thought, that he would come on tomorrow, oh, tomorrow, last night. Well. After the show, of course, I sent him an email and I said, are you okay? And he was very sheepish. He said, I overslept because I thought it was Sunday night, Monday morning. So obviously the, you know, my confusion and proud of his mind and then his, uh, you know, transposition of, of times and dates because remember when we do the show here, it's the next day in England. So he has now been rescheduled for next Saturday night, this coming Saturday. Uh, six days from now and then on Sunday night and I'm thinking that my guest tonight's going to be very interested in listening to uh, either the show live or a replay of next Sunday night because next Sunday night I'm doing three hours of a background for the Artemis One unmanned test launch mission around the moon for six weeks a 42 day mission is being planned uh, and you know my suspicions that it will be delayed. And they will actually launch on September 2nd, which is their next open launch window. Why? Well, because September 2nd is a 39-day long mission. And as you will see next Sunday night, um, they have built in a number of 39s, which of course is twice 19.5 into the mission plan and we will unveil them and decode them one by one in addition to a, I hope, stunning uh, panorama of all the astonishing things on the moon that have been discovered over the last 50 years since Apollo and even before that um, NASA for some reason just hasn't kind of gotten around to telling us about. And we may get into that this evening, we may not, but uh, I was talking with Chandra a few minutes ago about the possibility that uh, these upcoming three missions to the moon, the um, uh, unmanned but capable of carrying humans Artemis One test flight, and then the two unmanned robotic missions, the uh, Capstone uh, mission launched about a month ago, and the Denuri mission launched by the South Koreans uh, just a couple weeks ago, or maybe a week ago, carrying the uh, Malin Shadow Cam, weighing all of 33 symbolic pounds on the South Korean unmanned 1,500-pound spacecraft. Um, they're all going into lunar orbit. They all are going to be carrying extraordinarily sophisticated, state-of-the-art uh, digital HD imaging systems and out of all of that if we don't see what's really there and the world go through potentially the second greatest paradigm shift of all time uh, chandra and i tonight are going to talk about the first and we will not leave that on the cutting room floor before i bring him on so without further ado that's kind of like a recap of what was going on last night and again it was so serendipitous because I had a number of callers. Everybody had brilliant questions, excellent responses. Even my old friend and antagonist on the whole Trump experience, Robert Morningstar. And I was very fascinated and and um, um, kind of, you know, buttressed in my perception of Robert and his character. 
that he correctly identified President Trump's failure to completely release the 50-plus-year-old Kennedy files, which under law should have been declassified last year or even the year before. I forget exactly when. And the president, President Trump, under the aegis of the CIA, demurred, and there are apparently something like 300 files that ex-President Trump is now, um, basically, he committed an illegal, illegal act. And I was really intrigued that uh, Robert admitted that he committed a major illegal act. But I think that Robert's attribution that has something to do with mundane and stupid and really kind of absurd terrestrial politics is missing the point. Because part of what did not enter into our conversation last night, which the next time I have Robert on, I'm going to bring it up. Remember one of the other things that President Trump was told that came out toward the end of his four years, that he had wanted to uh, declassify and reveal the existence of extraterrestrials, extraterrestrial life, meaning, you know, little guys, big guys, whatever kind of guys in spaceships. And that some group within the Israeli government, um, their, their, their uh, you know, intelligence community, the Mossad and whatever, um, had basically told him by means of an intermediary contact, i.e. the Israelis were talking to the ETs, the ETs talked to the Israelis, the Israelis talked to Trump and said, no, you guys aren't ready yet, which, of course, I think is propaganda. Remember, delay, delay, delay. We're never supposed to know our real situation on Earth. And that up to and includes a lot of things that literally could go back 13.8, is it 13.8 now? Billion years in the past where the ostensible Big Bang, which started this whole soap opera, supposedly began. Well, tonight we're going to hear as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. And it's getting really interesting, really exciting, really fast. So um, as prelude, let me go through a couple of news items. Obviously, if you are new to the other side of midnight, what you want to do is you want to click on uh, the other side of midnight.com. That's our home base. That's our URL. That will take you to our home page at the top of the home page, just below the banner. You will see tonight's show banner, which says how the Webb Space Telescope will prove the reality of extraterrestrial life. Now, I know that's kind of a sweeping assertion on my part, but I seem to have good company because I think uh, Dr. Rick Ramasinghe and I share this same perception that because of the extraordinary capabilities of Webb already demonstrated, as we're going to talk about in some detail in the rest of these uh, three hours, uh, that is really not a over-the-edge-of-the-surfboard um, assertion, because I think from a number of different uh, directions, the new web data will wind up proving that not only are we not alone, but there is this exquisite, extraordinary, intimate connection between what's been going on here and what has gone on out there. And time, and maybe not very much of it, will tell. So once you find the guest page, you want to click on under that banner on the guest page. It says Fast Links to Items. Click on my name. It takes you down to this section of the uh, Radio with Pictures page. And my first item, of course, is the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, this is the home page, not a kind of a log or a, um, uh, you know, uh, progress page. This is the home page for Webb. And I, I'm putting that up tonight so that you can follow all the various threads of new research and new announcements. And there are even links there somewhere. I haven't had time to kind of look myself, but I know there's somewhere to the actual raw web data. As I was uh, talking with Chandra moments ago, like JPL, which has put up raw images from Curiosity and Perseverance and a number of other missions over the years, like uh, Cassini and Galileo, uh, they, the web people have put up 
a raw data page where you can actually, if you know where the links are, you can actually find your way to the web data, including imaging, uh, before it's made generally public and before it comes out in uh, scientific papers, which is a very important public transparency step forward for the agency. Because this is the cutting edge data, which frankly is going to totally upend, I think, uh, terrestrial civilization. And again, it's only a matter of time. And it may not be that much time. In fact, it may not be past the end of 2022, which might explain that very bizarre artifact in the Biden White House in the Oval Office, um, which we'll talk about next Sunday night. Item number two. Last night, August 20th, was literally the 45th anniversary of the launch of Voyager 2. Remember, way back in the 1970s, uh, we sent two spacecraft uh, on unending journeys into interstellar space. And I, I know some of the initial calculations way back then were that the, uh, the uh, Voyagers and the pioneers preceding them would probably last beyond the death of the sun, which is projected, according to the models, to be something like five billion uh, years from now before the sun expands to a red giant and then collapses into a little white dwarf about the size of the earth and smolders away for billions and billions, hundreds of billions of years, cooling like an ember in the dark. Well, the new data says that the Voyager spacecraft, both of them, and by metonymy, because they're basically the same, you know, spacecraft type, same engineering, same materials, same galaxy, same velocities, all four, and actually you need to add new horizons in that because we now have five spacecraft, unmanned spacecraft, that are literally moving away from the solar system in excess of the escape velocity from the sun at those distances and so they will drift through the galaxy never to return well the latest calculations for all these five robots are that they won't last just billions of years which would put them beyond the lifespan of the earth and the sun or even hundreds of billions of years which would put them beyond the lifespan of a lot of the stars currently glittering in the galaxy but now the latest calculation says they should last for, wait for it, trillions of years. And I did not have time before the show to go and look and see where this extraordinary calculation was posted or published or how it was peer reviewed. But in, in essence, what we have done, the human race barely out of, you know, diapers, is we have created essentially the first well, actually not in my view, the current latest version of interstellar immortal artifacts that our current human civilization uh, is capable of creating. It's literally, these things are going to be out there forever by any human time frame or even computer's time frame. So for a little probe, or actually five of them, launched from this planet, this solar system in this out-of-the-way spiral arm of a rather average galaxy is capable of creating artifacts that will last to the end of time. If you can think of time as having uh, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that's, of course, what we're going to talk about tonight, because it may be that the only thing that will bring these craft to destruction of some form could be the literal ending of this cycle of the universe itself. And that, of course, has introduced several interesting terms, um, which we will get into with Chandra momentarily, which brings me to item number three. Um, according to people who have been looking at this very carefully, I'm really kind of surprised that this data has come in so early, because normally something of such paradigm shattering potential you know they sit on it they talk about it they dream about it they hem and haw and you know it's it's, it's a long time before it gets published it's certainly published in any peer-reviewed uh, uh, forum journal but this 
this information, this this idea, this concept that maybe the Big Bang didn't happen and that Webb has provided evidence to the contrary, I mean, it's so hot off the presses that uh, it even has exceeded the uh, velocity of misinformation on the on the Internet. And there is a book, a very famous book, published back in the 1970s, I think, by a guy named uh, Eric J. Lerner called The Big Bang Never Happened. And it's been so long since I read the book that I don't even remember his assembled evidence. Some of it has to do with maybe things we think are galaxies receding or merely clumps of plasma orbiting the Milky Way, something like that. And I'm obviously totally misreading or misremembering. But... Chandra will enlighten me in the next few minutes. So without further ado, um, let me uh, give you the background on my guest of the evening. He has been a guest on the show many times before, and our conversations have only gotten increasingly interesting and deep and, uh, uh, shall we say, open-ended. So let me be a little formal here. Professor Chandrabik Singh is an internationally acclaimed astronomer and one of the foremost pioneers of modern astrobiology. Chandra is famous for his pioneering studies on the carbonaceous nature of cosmic dust, interstellar dust, and the prevalence of extraterrestrial life. And of course, a lot of that interstellar stuff comes sweeping through the solar system and thereby uh, hangs a tale of life on Earth, according to Chandra's major model. Uh, Dr. Wickrama Singh is recipient of several international awards and honorary doctorates and was a former fellow of Jesus College, Cambridge, and a professor at Cardiff University for more than 40 years. He is currently an honorary professor and director of the Buckingham Center for Astrobiology at the University of Buckingham, an honorary professor and director of the University of Runa Center for Astrobiology in Sri Lanka, honorary professor at the Sir John Kettlewalla Defense University of Sri Lanka, associate professor of the National Institute of Fundamental Studies in Sri Lanka, and also a founding member of the newly formed Institute for the Study of Panspermia and Astroeconomics in Gifu, Japan. He has written over 30 books, 300 scientific papers and still counting over 60 of these in the premier scientific peer-reviewed journal of planet earth the journal nature so without further ado chandra come on down hi nice talking to you again after all these weeks well i i was so i was so bummed as we say in the in this country or disappointed as you would say there that you couldn't be on weeks ago right after uh, uh, Webb was uh, unveiled and, and you were suffering from some of the after effects of COVID. I'm, I'm glad to report tonight yeah. that you're hale yeah. and hearty yeah. and fit. Yeah, I just didn't feel like uh, getting up in the morning and, and on that occasion. And it was a bit, uh, it was all a, a bit of a mess. But now we are, at least we are together and we are talking. So let's go ahead well the, uh, see this is why i say that you know god is kind of our executive producer and that's only slightly tongue-in-cheek um mm-hmm. because if we had had this conversation even a few weeks ago we would not have the information and the data that we can discuss very robustly tonight which frankly yeah. stands on the edge of totally upending everything we think we know about the universe and that's not a trivial statement to be able to make in only two or three short weeks yeah that's right i mean things have happened at such a pace that it's almost incredible and um and uh, i i think it's uh, as you said what's happening is is truly a game changer in terms of our perceptions of the universe that we've been clinging to for almost uh, half a century or more than that now. Okay, before so, we get to the game-changing stuff, I think what you need to do is delve into your personal history because you happen to be very close friends and colleagues with one of my scientific idols, uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, back before he even was, was uh, knighted. I remember Fred Hoyle, remember the whole controversy over steady state versus Big Bang. So for those people that have come into the conversation late, and I'm talking about, you know, decades late. Let's begin mm. at the beginning and lay out what happened after George Gamow proposed 
the so-called Big Bang model, which was a term that came from uh, Hoyle rather derisively, I think, one evening on a BBC radio show, because he was completely opposed to the idea the universe had a beginning or an end and felt that it was always here, and we were just kind of looking at the data wrongly. And the other information in that same time frame, which supported the idea of a Big Bang and then an expansion and all that, was the Lowell uh, discoveries at Lowell Observatory by Slipher of the redshifts of these little cloudy things that at that time were not even known to be extra Milky Way galaxies. And it was only when Hubble, the famed Hubble at Mount Wilson, uh, was able to measure the distance to Andromeda at over a million light years back then, that mm. the idea that these little smudgy fudges or fudgy smudges were really other galaxies and they were receding. And so there was a foundation laid for a very simple, naive model that if you have an explosion, things race away from the center and you could look at the red shifts as a physical Doppler shift because things were speeding away from our apparent position at the, quote, center, all observationally kind of selected. So that was the model. And so now you can swing into where uh, Dr. Hoyle, and I believe it was a guy named Narlicker at the time, who came That's up right. with something yeah, really was... radically different. And so take it away from there. Okay. Well, I arrived in Cambridge in 1960, uh, in the 1960s, to work with Fred Hoyle as his student. And he had just sort of published his work on the uh, formation of the elements, and he was a great big name in astron astronomy at the time. Uh, and uh, it was my privilege just to, to have my sort of PhD training under him. So. Uh, at the time that I saw him, he was really busy working on um, uh, what is called the steady state theory, uh, a challenge to the so-called Big Bang theory. Now, I, th I think we should go a little back in time now, because most of the, the definite knowledge we have about the universe and we had about the universe discovered uh, by really much earlier generations of telescopes, long before uh, even James Webb and so on were conceived. Uh, and this goes back over 100 years. And these were telescopes, really historic telescopes, like what you mentioned, the Mount Wilson telescope in California, 100-inch telescope, and so on, uh, which essentially transformed astronomy. And um, Hubble's discovery, uh, you refer to that as well, of redshifts uh, led to the idea of an well, expansion. Well, 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 Hubble did not discover the redshift. That was Slipher at the Lowell <laughs> Observatory. And yeah, Hubble big... and Wilson, for political reasons, yes. because Lowell delved, de delved into Mars and nobody's supposed to ever think about life on Mars. So I yes. think politically, and I actually wrote this in a book two years ago, there was a political schism where Lowell and Slipher and the redshift discovery at Lowell was basically you know, suppressed, and everybody was made to think that it was Hubble at Mount Wilson using the 100-inch to discover the redshift. No, it was Earl Slipher at the Lowell Observatory in northern Arizona, about 300 miles to the west of me. Yeah, 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 I stand corrected. I think that was certainly true historically. But it was Hubble's uh, interpretation of the redshifts that essentially changed the course of uh, of. Cosmolog cosmological history, isn't it? In the 1920s, he published this classic paper on the redshifts of galaxies interpreted as evidence of an expanding universe. The further you looked at your galaxies, the, the redshift was greater, and it seemed as though um, the, all of the stuff that was around us in the form of stars and galaxies essentially started as a point uh, some time ago, and that time has been sort of pinpointed with uh, seemingly with greater and greater accuracy to something like 13.8 billion years uh, before the present. But um, uh, so th that was the, the story before the, the, the big telescopes, the, the bigger telescopes came into operation, and certainly long before. Uh, James Webb Telescope or the Hubble Telescope were even 
dreamt about. Mm. But didn't Hubble, toward the end of his life, and he was a very unusual creature, he was a very bizarre individual. He kind of adopted all kinds of British mannerisms, and yet he mm. was born in Kentucky, I think. Anyway, yeah. didn't he, toward the end of his life, like Einstein, who toward mm. the end of his life kind of rethought and recanted relativity, um, didn't Hubble really question if the redshifts really were Doppler effects of things racing away and gravitate more toward tired light or unusual physics or whatever? Yeah, I think there were, there were echoes of that uh, right from the beginning that this was not necessarily uh, a proof of expansion, but something else was going on. But I think the 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 strongest opinions that essentially survived that uh, epoch of discovery was the the Big Bang universe, so-called Big Bang universe, and that was uh, favored by astronomers, cosmologists, and so on, for one simple reason: because it seemed to vindicate the. Uh, this, the, the Judeo-Christian story of a creation. Ah, because was, because uh, it was a Belgian astronomer, I believe a Jesuit named Abbe Lamatier, yeah. who had this Roman Catholic background, who also was yes. a major player in cosmology at the time, back in the, what, 20s, I guess. And yeah. he was yeah. a proponent that Big Bang basically authenticated the Bible in the beginning. I think that that rings through right from the beginning to the present day. The the fact that this uh, is something that could essentially prove the Bible, prove the biblical story of creation in, in to a really uh, amazing degree of precision. This was the the driving force for people maintaining that the Big Bang theory, Big Bang, was the final explanation of how the universe came to be. And um, uh, so in the 1960s, uh, when I m met up with Fred Hall and uh, my, my colleague at the time, uh, roughly my age, was, was Jan Nalika, who was working with Fred Hall on alternative cosmologies. And the cosmologies that they were working on were called steady-state cosmologies, right? So this was the idea that the universe did not start at a, at a definite moment in time, but was uh, there for all time and existed for essentially forever. And so the, uh, the, the, the attempt was made to, to link up all the new data that was emerging in astronomy from the uh, expansion of the universe, the Hubble data, to new data that was coming from radio astronomy uh, to essentially accommodate a model of the universe that didn't start all in one go 13.8 or 13.9 billion years ago. So this was a very serious activity that was going on in Cambridge under the um, guidance of Fred Hall but it was not popular. I could feel the... Okay, okay. We are, the, we are at the bottom of the hour. Hold it right there. It was not popular. And when we come back, I'm going to propose that what Chandra is going to talk about tonight, which is a return to a non-Big Bang perspective that has new supporting evidence via web. I'm going to propose that this is not only one shattering paradigm shift, but maybe two. And I'll tell you what the second one is when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, August 21, 2022. We're discussing origins, beginning times, and everything tonight with my friend and guest, uh, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh, live from England at the crack of dawn in Britain. It's uh, just sunrise or shortly uh, before or after. And we're discussing huge paradigm shifts. And maybe we should, for some of those folks out there who never heard the word, define what a paradigm shift is. And I will leave uh, Chandra to do that because I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote a very famous book about uh, uh, paradigm shift. In the the upper right-hand corner, where it says the other side of midnight, there's a white circle with three horizontal lines. You click on that. Are you talking, Keith, to Chandra? Yeah, I was trying to get him to turn his notification sounds oh. off. So. Yeah, I kind of noticed those. So, uh, yeah. tell me again. Now. I got, I got. Okay, while they talk about housekeeping, let me finish my backgrounder. <clears throat> uh, by the way, if you, if you notice the music, I'm I'm really falling in love with the, the soundtrack from The Martian because it seems so apropos of this extraordinary threshold in human and cosmic history that we are now in. We are in the paradigm shift. We are in disclosure. And it's not occupying the same rate on all fronts. Some areas are moving faster than others. And then we have the secret of what is in those boxes that ex-President Trump squirreled away at Mar-a-Lago. Are there indeed the secrets of anti-gravity free energy, extraterrestrials, visit, all that stuff that we're never, ever supposed to know. Okay, let me return to the conversation and see. Get back to Rich. Uh, Oh, perfect timing. So you guys are all set? Well, not really, but we're close. So we'll let you continue. We'll finish this in the next break. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I, I kind of wondered if it was mine or his, and I'm, I'm glad we, you know, pinned it down to at least one of ours. So as I was going to say, do you remember, Chandra, the guy who coined the term paradigm shift in science? Chandra? We didn't lose Chandra, did we? He's still there. He's probably muted. Yeah, he says he's muted. So you need to unmute. There you are. Okay, okay. You are back. Yeah, I don't uh, remind remind me his name. I don't. Yeah, I don't remember it either. But anyway, there was a very famous scientist who wrote a book about that science, like nothing else on Earth, does not proceed in a smooth curve or a straight line, but it goes through these, as you said earlier, step functions, meaning you get to a certain point and then something is discovered or a couple things and they synergize together and a whole bunch of stuff gets turned upside down that scientists, mainstream guys and gals thought they knew and it's called a paradigm shift. Yeah, um, and I mean that paradigm shift in the structure in, in the of sci- the structure of scientific revolution was the name of the book, and I still can't. Kuhn. Thomas Kuhn. Kuhn. Thomas Kuhn. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I think that what the the upset now in cosmology 
and maybe the putting of the Big Bang permanently away is a demonstration of the failure of Occam's razor thinking in terms of paradigm shifts. And for those of you who don't remember Occam's razor, Occam's razor is this uh, kind of aphorism that came from a, a British gentry, uh, uh, Sir William of Occam, which basically says uh, the simplest hypothesis is probably true. That if you unnecessarily complicate your model, your theory, with you know appurtenances, with filigree, with additional um, kind of side explanations, the more uh, you know complicated it gets, the less likely it is to be true. And I've always felt for years, Chandra, that that is a fundamental misapprehension of how humans perceive reality, because when it comes to the idea of intelligent life in the universe, other than Earth, other than us, by definition, it's going to be a very complicated data set that we're presented with, nothing simple about it. And the other thing that I think got us into this blind canyon is the attraction of the Big Bang model was so simple, so Occam's razorish. You have a beginning, you have a point, you have an explosion, things fly away from it. What could be simpler? and more Occam's razorish than that. And the mm. idea of complicated physics and tired light and multiple dimensions and cyclic, in other words, those were all so much more complicated than a simple big bang. I think that was what overwhelmingly swayed cosmologists, that and this Christian overtone to thinking that the universe had to have a beginning. And in the midst of all that, in the noise, there were these two guys, maybe more than two, but I can remember the two, Fred Hoyle and uh, Jan Narlicker, who said, mm. wait a minute, there's another alternative. And so lay out what they were proposing. Well, uh, they, they said that if there was uh, no Big Bang and you still want the universe to be expanding, uh, you need to create, somehow create new matter to fill the gaps between the the, the 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 galaxies that are flying apart. So that was the the simplest model of the steady state theory was one of uh, a continuous creation of new matter uh, to to replenish what was being lost in terms of the expansion. So that that was uh, the, the the first attempt to do so. But I think as things progressed, as the microwave, there was a discovery that was hailed as being essentially the proof of the Big Bang theory in the 1960s, which was the discovery of the microwave, cosmic microwave background. Uh, Penzias and Wilson accidentally discovered that there was a huge sort of bath of radiation in which uh, all the planets, all the galaxies were sitting, and this was uh, attributed to the uh, radiation that emerged from the Big Bang. The Big Bang radiation was very high energy radiation to begin with, and uh, at the present time, it's become more and more degraded and it's turned into a microwave background. That was the, the story that was really firmly accepted and believed from the 19, mid-1960s onwards. Uh, and nothing was uh, uh, able to budge that, because, budge the, from that position because it was so securely held by cosmologists Everything that happened in astronomy was sort of almost forced to fit into this uh, Big Bang model, and um, and that was the the situation that prevailed all the way until um, Fred and Nardica, and then Jeffrey Burbage was uh, the preeminent astronomer in California, a British-born astronomer, uh, who joined this team of. Uh, astronomers who said that the universe did not or need not have begun with a, a Big Bang and a unique event like a Big Bang. It, uh, this, uh, this, this had to be revised. So that was uh, where we uh, had uh, arrived at, at the time that uh, uh, the Hubble telescope in so two or three years ago uh, was essentially discovering galaxies at distances and at, at times in the history of the universe when there should be no galaxies, right? Uh, the, the Big Bang theory says that it, everything started from a point, 
uh, energy matter, it all started from a point, and there was uh, uh, a period in which uh, uh, nothing really could have happened except the accumulation of particles into into bigger and bigger uh, associations and the formation of atoms and so on. And they have uh, cryptic descriptions of dark ages in the early universe and when nothing really could have been even seen through telescopes. But um, already with the Hubble telescope, they were finding about two or three years ago, they were finding uh, galaxies that should not be there at some six, uh, 600 uh, uh, million years after the Big Bang. Uh, there there should, not, should not have been any galaxies there. But now the James Webb telescope is finding uh, even more dramatic, making more dramatic discoveries of galaxies that were only supposedly 200 years, 200 million years after the Big Bang. There should not be galaxies, according to any of these Big Bang models, as early as that. And yet, they seem to be uh, crushing evidence. Well, well, what you need to do is we have plenty of time. That's one thing you have with a long-form radio show. In the middle of the night, you have plenty of time. Explain the idea that past a certain point in distance, there should be, in the Big Bang model, no perceptible galaxies. Yeah, because the the, the 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 atoms had to form first, right? You had energy to begin with, the only energy, and then you had uh, the formation of the atom, of the hydrogen atom uh, to begin with, and then you had to make stars in order to to uh, to uh, form the uh, the heavy elements. Uh, now, all that stuff goes back to the 1950s and so on, when Fred Hoyle and his collaborators uh, showed us how stars are born in our galaxy from gas and dust clouds, and how stars evolve and make all the chemical elements, such as carbon, oxygen, uh, iron, and so on. And, and this was all sort of firmly set in stone, as it were, in the 1950s. Uh, so Fred Hall and his collaborators uh, worked all this out all the way back in the 1950s. And uh, and thanks to that work and thanks to Fred and Willie Fowler and Jeffrey Burbage and Margaret Burbage, we began to understand how and where the chemical elements came from. They were made in stars. So the first step in forming galaxies would be to make uh, the chemical elements, to make hydrogen first and then helium and so on. So you have to make stars. And, uh, and that could not have happened as well. Wait, wait, wait. When you say the elements, you mean everything uh, heavier than helium. Yeah, yeah. Okay, which are called euphemistically metals even though metals. you have a whole bunch of other things like nitrogen and oxygen that are obviously yeah. not metals, but everything, hydrogen and helium supposedly formed in the Big Bang yeah. and, and, the, and a smidgen of things I think like maybe lithium, maybe, I, yeah. if I'm remembering correctly, but everything yeah. else all the way up to uh, uranium, 92, yeah. was supposedly formed in stars or in supernovae, the catastrophic explosions of, of dying stars. And so, except for those first two elements, the lightest, hydrogen and helium, everything else we see in the galaxy and in the universe and in other galaxies were supposedly formed by star formation and then explosion and then re-infecting re, re the interstellar medium, those new gas clouds condense into new stars, and so you have populations of stars, each successive population enriched in elements heavier than hydrogen and helium, and this was the accepted mainstream model up until when? This was the, the mainstream model that prevails all, all the way to the present time. Ah, okay, okay. Basically. Right, so when, when you see stars, fully-fledged stars, which obviously had to have all these processes fully f operating in them, uh, at a time that was something like 200 million years after the uh, presumed Big Bang, 
then there's a moment of crisis and that's that's the moment of crisis that we have arrived at now i think there was a there was a object that was called uh, 93316 i think was a galaxy and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's your item, it, it's your item number three in the web telescope images in Chandra's section tonight of radio with pictures. Yeah, yeah, and it's some third, third, it's supposed to be supposed to be some thirty-five billion light years away from us, and uh, so we've gone back to a couple of hundred million years after the Big Bang, and all of the theories that are. Uh, around and that were around until this moment in time uh, says that there should no, should be no galaxies at that moment in the history of the universe so we are finding galaxies where there should not have been when when there should not have been any galaxies any stars at all so it's really looking very precarious for the for the judeo-christian supported <laughs> big bang theory <laughs> And that's that's the way I would like to see it. I think, I think. Uh, I mean, I don't want to bash the Judeo-Christians in any significant way, but in terms of their cosmology, if you're going to stick to Judeo-Christian cosmology, that has been uh, a disaster right from the beginning, isn't it? I mean, in geology, the Earth was supposed to be only a few thousand years old, mm. and uh, rocks were found that were billions of years old that 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 was another moment of crisis in the uh, some hundred years ago or something for geologists and for uh, science for, for for the religious guys so there's been a constant continual clash between um, religious points of view and uh, and so, the science so, Chandra, just let me get this clear because i know if i'm a bit confused and I kind of, you know, have lived with this stuff for a long time. Other people might even be in worse condition. In a in a in a Big Bang, the universe has a point of origin model. You begin with hydrogen and helium, uh, fiat lux. God said, "Let there be whatever." And then, as the universe expands and those ga uh, gases condense, you begin with energy. You begin not even with hydrogen and helium. You begin with the intense undefined energy concentrating everything that was to happen subsequently in the universe and that's that's, that's just referred to as energy and that energy has then to be made into particles and the particles uh, the fundamental particles are formed and hydrogen is formed and so on and uh, Eventually, the the elements, chemical elements, are formed. As I said, see one the of the one of the questions I always had, and I guess I never had anybody to ask, is if in the Big Bang model, when you have this energy emerging creation mm. of the universe, and mm. then you have creation of the two simplest elements, mm. hydrogen, which is a proton, electron, and helium, which is a proton and a neutron and an electron. Yeah. Um. If you, if if you're going to wait for stars to get all the rest of the elements, mm. why in the intense inferno of that creational singularity, don't you get a huge panoply of heavier elements like you get in stars later? Or is that epic so brief in this model that there's no time to form sufficient heavier elements before the expansion of the universe in that model? brings things too far apart for nu nucleosynthesis to to continue. Yeah, no, nucleosynthesis depends on very high, very high density, very high pressures inside stars. So in the in the in the expansion of the universe, and even from then in the early days, the densities uh, were not high enough to have nuclear reactions taking place in in a, in a sort of purely gas phase, as it were. So you needed to make stars, you needed to make very high concentrations of these at a very high densities. And uh, and, 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 and keep those conditions for a long time, billions of years, or at least hundreds of millions. For a long time, yeah. Ah. And not in, not in 100 million years or a couple of hundred million years, they had to... Uh, keep going for much longer than that and so the so the big crisis is that we have for these fully fledged stars okay so let me let me let me let me let me get back to c uh here's say eers which i presume is a observatory or an association or whatever and this is a catalog number 
93316, this galaxy presumed to be now 35 billion light years away. And that's yeah. just a distance because, um, guys, the, the universe is not expanding. It's actually decree. It's accelerating in its expansion. Mm-hmm. It used to be thought it was going to decrease, you know, like you expand a, an explosion at some point it stops and it begins to contract again. Well, the universe, they found out a few years ago, is not only expanding or the redshifts are increasing, but they're increasing at an accelerating rate, so they'll never come back to a big crunch. The stuff will never fall back together to a singularity, another point, to begin another cycle. Am I I correct on that? Yeah, I think so. I think think it's supposed to be just continuing to expand. Uh, with the momentum that it has at the beginning. And, and at uh, an accelerating rate, which is where the concept of dark energy came in, which Einstein, way back in the uh, teens, when he created his you know, cosmological models, he put in a fudge factor, the so-called cosmological constant, because he couldn't get his equations to balance, where the universe was either sitting still, not contracting, not expanding. And then when the Hubble data was made public, and he had an expansion, he had to put in this so-called cosmological constant to keep the universe expanding. Well, now we find from the uh, Hubble data, particularly on distant uh, supernovae remnants in distant galaxies, that the redshift is getting bigger the farther Mm. out or the higher the redshift is. So that's been interpreted as an expansion of the expanding universe model. In other words, the, the explosion is accelerating and that raises the question, well, where's the energy coming from to accelerate an already existing expansion? And then, so this galaxy, which they say is now 35 billion, and that's a corrected number for the Hubble constant expanding and all that. Yeah. Is this galaxy composed of only hydrogen stars or spectroscopically, have they been able to look with the other instrumentation on web and see the spectra and see that it's already got a good uh, mixture of so-called heavier elements or metals among the hydrogen, which means it's got to be a mature galaxy back at a time when nothing else but hydrogen and helium should exist. Well, I think I think the latter is likely to be the case. I mean, that has not been published in a in in a scientific journal yet, but I suspect that it was it is a fully fledged galaxy pretty close to what our galaxy looks like and our galaxy is at the present time pretty close to what uh, the galaxy like andromeda is i think it's a fully fledged galaxy with with uh, the full complement of chemical elements which uh, means if it's like us and it's at the beginning within a couple hundred million years of the origin of the universe in the big bang model it can't exist but it does exist therefore the model has to be wrong that's exactly what i'm going to tell you that i think the the model has been disproved decisively from the very first uh, data that has emerged from the james webb telescope and even earlier than that from the 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 last sort of uh, observations that were made about two or three years ago with the hubble telescope there were embarrassing signs that the big bang theory was uh, was deeply is deeply flawed. So I think this has been this has been coming. It's not it's not something that astronomers have uh, had on them sort of suddenly without any warning. It's been coming for a long time. So the but, foundations but, have been laid from the latest Hubble data going back a few years. So when this new web data comes in a few days ago, I mean, come on, we're yeah. talking a revolution in days. There was already a fertile ground from which people can now say with protecting their professionalism and their egos and their priorities and their, you know, individuality. Well, we kind of suspected this for a long time. I think that's true. I think, I mean, even even going back to the year 2000, uh, Jeffrey Burbage, Fred Hoyle and Nalika wrote a book called Alternative Cosmologies in which they they discuss all of this as, uh, ah. as really quite a serious uh, challenge to the the Big Bang theory. And then, independently of Fred and his team, Fred Hall and his team, uh, the, the the Nobel laureate uh, 
uh, Penrose has also been, with, along with his colleagues, has been talking about uh, oscillating universes, universe, uh, universes that are called conformal cosmologies, where the, there is no beginning and no end. And so this has been sort of simmering in the uh, scientific community for a while, although it was still, and it is still really very, very unpopular because it challenges a long-held a belief that the universe had to start and everything had to start with a... But wait, wait, wait. Doesn't Webb give all these screaming mainstream guys, I can hear them in the background now, doesn't give them a kind of a plausible excuse, well, all our data up until this point led us in this direction, but because of the stunning engineering breakthrough of Webb, kind of like mm. when, when the 100-inch was built, um, mm. we now have such new data that we realize that the old data can fit in, but it's given us a, a, a bigger frame from which to look at it, and now we can safely adjust our models without losing face. Well, I think that, I mean that's one way of looking at it, but I, th I think the the, uh, the the bottom line is that the data is so fundamentally at odds with the conventional point of view that. Uh, I, I don't believe that you can maintain the this the old point of view for very long. I think it's 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 really falling apart in a way that would be uh, totally a total disaster for the protagonists of the Big Bang theory uh, before very long. I think given give another ten years, they will be dead and buried. Wow, you think it's going to take that long? Well, I think I think people are very resistant to change mm -hmm. their minds, isn't it? And and, and for uh, I mean, think of the, the ideas that life started on the Earth. Uh, these are still hanging on almost by by the, the flimsiest thread. There's not a shred of evidence that life started on the Earth. In fact, all of the, uh, the, the, the scientific evidence shows that it could not have. The improbabilities are so grotesquely wasked, wasked that it could not have happened that way. And yet... The, uh, the scientific community still maintains that any evidence that, we've, that, that we get for life coming from space, life existing in space and so on, uh, is, uh, has to be flawed and has to be discounted. <laughs> yeah, well, that one's going to maybe be shattered in the next few months by some really amazing data from the moon. Hey, we are at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh, and we're discussing an upending of kind of everything because if you get rid of the big bang model in other words the universe has a finite beginning a middle and maybe not anymore an ending because of the the expansion seems to be accelerating then how do you explain all this new data that there are galaxies so far away according to the uh, doppler model that they have to be incredibly ancient, 35 billion light years away. Well, how can they be older than the tabulation of the age of the universe? And basically the same as our galaxy, as our stars here in this incredible island universe we call the Milky Way. We're going to get into all of that when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. For listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that please visit the website the other side of midnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. 
Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>